As a physician, you routinely check your patient's health, but when was the last time you checked the financial health of your practice? You could be needlessly losing money right now. So stop bleeding money. Get insights about your group's financial performance with a free, no strings attached assessment from CareCloud, a leader in medical billing solutions, EHR, and more. CareCloud has over 20 years of experience helping large and small providers boost profitability and has helped thousands of practices optimize their financial operations. Request your free revenue cycle assessment and learn more about your group's performance by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud, that's spelled C-A-R-E-C-L-O-U-D. Make that drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Welcome to another episode of the Medical Liability Minute, where we speak for more than a minute. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. I'm CEO and founder of Medical Justice, and we're joined today by our continued fearless leader, General Counsel Mike Sakopoulos. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. It's been an uphill battle to remain fearless, but I'm doing my best. Thanks for having me. Is it better to be fearless or fearsome? Um, well, it's nice that you think it's an option. I guess um, it, fearsome, maybe. I don't know. All right. They're probably both, they probably complement each other. Hmm. So today we continue our trajectory called Ripped from the Headlines, where we identify um, items newsworthy to the medical legal world found from the headlines, either from news media or um, court records. In this case, this is a spinal fluid leak in a baseball pitcher texting during surgery. So spinal fluid leak in a baseball pitcher texting during surgery, $5 million settlement. Actually, it was $5.1 million, not just 5 million. Hmm. So let's get into the details. The plaintiff was a pitcher for a major league baseball team who suffered some type of spinal injury. While operating, the surgeon was booking another case, supposedly texting and accepting calls. Uh, two weeks later, the patient developed headaches, a neck pain, and leaking of clear fluid, in this case, spinal fluid, from uh, the wound. A second uh, surgery identified a jagged piece of bone which caused the leak. The patient was left with ongoing pain and was unable to return to pitching. The plaintiff alleged the doctor was distracted during the first surgery, texting and answering phone calls during uh, his surgery, which kept him from concentrating fully on the surgery. Um, this led him to leaving this bone shard unaddressed. So the surgeon defended by stating that CSF leak was a known risk of the procedure. This case was settled for $5.1 million. And this is the label of this case anonymous major league pitcher versus anonymous surgeon. Let me repeat, anonymous major league pitcher versus anonymous uh, surgeon. So, I mean, what's fascinating to me is that the doctor was capable of texting while he was operating. So that's not entirely clear how you would do that in a sterile field. Um, it may be that they were just piling on. I, I can certainly... I can certainly see how someone can accept a call during a case and potentially even have someone make a call for you. Or if you're wearing a headset, 
to be able to receive and make phone calls. But it's not clear to me how to text, although I guess it's possible to do this by voice to text. What, what do you... Or or what the surgeon did was turn over his or her phone to an assistant to essentially do clerical duties while he or she's performing surgery and they're directing their assistant to, all right, send so-and-so a message, put that case on tomorrow at one or yeah, something like that would be my guess. I don't know, but you're right. Otherwise it'd be breaking scrubber, you know, for each text. So, so let's start with the basics here. This was a spinal fluid leak after a spinal surgery. This is definitely a known risk of the procedure. It does ha it's not a desirable outcome, but it does happen. And it, it's, I wouldn't say it's um, particularly rare. It, it happens more often uh, than we'd like to see. Either spinal fluid detected at the time of surgery and properly repaired, or spinal fluid that leaks out later and is quickly identified and taken care of. And in this particular case, uh, let's see, how long did it take for them to move to the second surgery? It looks like it was a, I can't see precisely, but let's say it was identified reasonably quickly and ne necessitated a second surgery. Um, that in and of itself, if that was the only fact that was out there, I cannot see that a known risk of the procedure would trigger an obvious successful lawsuit, but here um, they're trying to bring in this extraneous fact, which is the surgeon was distracted. And I think the take-home message here is that a distraction in the operating room can and will be used by a plaintiff's attorney to explain some type of negative outcome, meaning that it wasn't just the procedure itself that caused the known risk to take place. It was the combination of the distracted surgeon uh, with the known risk of the procedure that ultimately led to the undesirable outcome. What are your thoughts? I think that, that I think that that's right. That's going to be the inferences that the distraction caused it. These are cases that seem to me now possible in the digital age. Um, we could imagine that there were plenty of distractions in ORs for a lot of decades, uh, but now things can be linked up by plaintiff's attorneys where you can get phone records and look at the times on those compared with uh, machinery and equipment in the OR and, and really triangulate in on what was going on at the procedure at the time of the call. Um, and those were the kind of things that were unknowable uh, back before smartphones and, and uh, the type of technology that we have now. So your point is, is that the distractions may have been present going back time immemorial, but nobody was really aware of them because of the ability to identify those distractions or at least to document what they are. Um, and you're probably right. Um, when you think about it, uh, people have been calling into the operating room um, as far back as I can remember. I mean, I was a medical student in the early 1980s and I was in the operating room and people, you know, the nurses used to call into the operating room frequently for all types of things. Can we discharge John Doe? Can we, um, you know, when do you want him seen back in the office? What test do you want done before he takes off? Those are people that were not in the operating room. The, they were being, they were getting calls from the intensive care unit. They were getting calls from the floor. Um, sometimes the office was calling asking doctor, will you be, 
Um, will you be on time to come to the office? I've booked your office with 35 people and I have you down to be there at one o'clock. What's your timing look like? I mean, these are the types of calls that have taken place forever and ever and ever, but I can't say that they've been tagged with uh, causing a distraction, causing a surgical complication. Well, and certainly there's plenty of literature out there that would support um, smartphones are, are a distraction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so somebody's going to be able to to use that those kind of articles to say that the phone shouldn't have been uh, being used, let alone in the uh, even even its presence in the OR could be a distraction uh, from the case. Whether or not that phone or that text message caused the patient's problem, um, I think you lose the benefit of the doubt. Right now you're you're fighting an uphill battle. Well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been texting, but it didn't really cause. And anytime you're on that the kind of loose footing, you've got you've got real issues. And I think that that's part of what is reflected in the settlement, is that it's going to be hard to convince um, a, a jury that it was okay you were conducting other business um, while uh, while working on somebody's spine. Yeah, the public, in this case, the jury fully expects that the patient has your full, complete, undivided attention. They're unaware of how a modern-day operating room works. They just believe, correctly or incorrectly, that 100% of the time, the surgeon is 100% focused on the patient and not managing anything else, um, even if it's potentially life-altering and threatening uh, to other patients uh, in the facility. That, that's that's right, and we've certainly seen that with other kinds of, of cases too, where um, people are uh, accused or, or caught using smartphone devices while in, in surgical uh, settings, and um, the general public reaction is that that's inappropriate, even without knowing whether or not um, it was it was safe at the time. So a lot of this is perception, which is to try and stay in front of this. Um, I'm, I'm reminded, and actually I'm reading this now, the American College of Surgeons put out a statement uh, recommending that the use of smartphones in the OR be guided by the following list of considerations. So this is a pretty sizable list. Let me go through some of these, okay? So um, first bullet point is that the undisciplined use of smartphones in the OR, whether for voice, email, or data communications, whether by the surgeon or other members of the surgical team, may pose a distraction and may compromise patient care. So they qualify their language with words like undisciplined use, may pose a distraction, may compromise patient care. So that sets the stage, which goes on. Surgeons should be considerate of the duties of personnel in the OR suite and refrain from engaging them unnecessarily, unnecessarily in activities, including assistance in cellular communication that might divert attention from the patient or conduct of the procedure. Smartphones must not interfere with patient monitoring devices or the other technologies required for patient care. Well, I'm into that. I think that's that's a given. Way to take a hard stance on this, huh? <laughs> yeah. Whenever possible, members of the OR team, including the surgeon, should only engage in urgent or emergent outside communication during an operation. Personal and routine calls 
should be minimized. All phone calls should be kept as brief as possible, not unreasonable. Whenever possible, incoming calls should be forwarded to the OR desk or to the hardwired telephone in the operating room to minimize the potential distraction of smartphones. And again, I'm just continuing with the American College of Surgeons statement on um, use of smartphones in the OR. Whenever possible, um, let's see, whenever possible, a distinct signal for urgent or emergent calls should be enabled. The signal may be implemented by a page op option in most smartphones. Caller should be advised to use this function only for urgent and emergent calls. If the phone is not answered, the use of electronic and mobile devices uh, must not compromise the integrity of the sterile field. Well, that's that's a bold stance, right? Okay. Mm. <laughs> um, special care should be taken to avoid sensitive communications within the uh, hearing of awake or sedated patients. That's a good point. Communication using hardwired phones in the OR is subject to the same discipline as communication using electronic device technology. And then, of course, the use of electronic mobile devices to take and transmit photos should be governed by hospital policy on photography of patients and government regulations pertaining to patient privacy and confidentiality. So therefore, the American College of Surgeons recommends the following protocols to reduce noise. Surgeons should be sensitive to all members of the operating room team when uh, selecting the music played during an operation. This includes volume, genre, and lyrics. So it's interesting. They don't, when I say they, I mean the American College of Surgeons in terms of guidance in the operating room. They don't rule out music being played uh, during an operation. They're just basically stating Surgeons should be sensitive to the members of the operating room team when selecting the music played, volume, genre, and lyrics. Um, tools to assist in establishing alarm safety protocols are widely available and should be implemented institution-wise. Okay, traffic in and out of the OR should be controlled both because of the potential for distraction as well as infection control, um, and then reduced Surgical equipment noise should be conveyed as a critical design factor to surgical instrument and device manufacturers. So uh, what is the take home message here? I think we get down to what is real distraction, what is perceived distraction. They're both important. If we go back to the initial litigation, anonymous baseball pitcher versus anonymous surgeon, it sounds like the patient developed a known risk of a spinal procedure, spinal fluid leak. And the cause of this was a jagged piece of bone, which was um, causing uh, the leak. Um, and the plaintiff, or more likely their attorney, was able to identify that the, the surgeon was texting and making calls during the procedure. Uh, and that distraction caused the problem. I, I think it's fascinating that they're able to identify that information during discovery. Mike, how, how do you think they got that nugget of information? Do you think that that, that was passed on from an internal source or you think they did it through I, formal discovery? That, that would be my, my guess because um, normally if there is a request for, look, Cellular records, um, 
especially certain texting as to the time that they were done are not kept for a significant amount of time. And litigation, mm -hmm. by the time you get to this stage of the discovery in, in a case, could be six months or a year after the incident and may not be available. So my guess is someone clued them in early. It may have been part of some other investigation that this information was uh, was obtained. The other problem for a plaintiff that's bringing this of wanting to see the data is off of a cell phone, if, if there is any kind of patient data, that's all going to be privileged related to someone else. And so it would not be discoverable. So my guess is someone in that OR um, made a complaint or said to the family or said to the patient, you should know your surgeon was spending more time looking at his or her cell phone screen than they were at, um, you know, at, at you. Um, and that, and, and who knows, it may be because they knew of the, of the patient. We're assuming that they're a major league baseball, uh, pitcher, uh, going to have some kind of, uh, of status in, in their, um, community. And someone wanted to, uh, speak up and say, this wasn't right. What was going in the OR and you should know. I, I clearly all this is just speculation, uh, but something happened here to alert the, plaintiff's attorney in a timely fashion to get those records and to um, get past issues of, of privilege to say there's really something here we need to see. What do you think you think it's possible has happened during deposition? So for example, um, nursing staff may have been deposed um, about the case saying, look, did during the case, did the doctor um, make any types of uh, calls or text messages on the phone, particularly if the nurse was responsible for it. You know, you wonder whether during deposition, these were just basic questions and the plaintiff attorney was fishing. And during that fishing expedition, uh, they came up with Pater. I, I, I do kind of believe this. There was probably inside information beforehand because I think a run of the mill spinal fluid leak after a, um, a spine surgery wouldn't in and of itself cause any red flags for a plaintiff attorney to say, oh, this is a great case to move forward. On the other hand, it is a baseball player, major league baseball player with a giant contract. And if you can't go back to pitching, we're talking about actual damages measured in the millions of dollars. In this case, it certainly was millions of dollars. So you can certainly see how he was an attractive plaintiff in the first place. The question was, how and when did they get this information related to the distraction? Yeah, my my guess is it's a, a disgruntled uh, tech in the in the mm -hmm. OR. That's I think we've certainly seen that many times before. And if I'm in Vegas playing the odds, that's where I'm going with this one. Is that it was somebody who uh, the surgeon uh, barked at and felt offended and was looking at a way to. Um, settle a score. So let me ask you this. If in the context of the American College of Surgeons guidelines on how to minimize distraction in the operating room, we move into the domain of, of a surgeon live streaming their cases, mm. you know, where they're putting yeah. it up on Instagram or some other platform. Right. Zoom, um, whatnot, right. It could be that the surgeon has a, a headset on where the uh, the cameras, you know, on top of his head, and he's narrating the case. Uh, 
live stream. Um, I guess what's different here, if they're basically teaching the public, it's certainly not necessary to do that. Um, one wonders whether the whole notion of narrating what you're doing to the public in plain language creates its own distraction. And I've always thought that these were formulas for a disaster at some point. I recognize why people do it. They do it for marketing purposes. They do it also to educate the public, um, to probably take the fear or scare out of a particular procedure. Also to let people know what they'll be getting into, what a procedure can, and more importantly, what a procedure cannot do. So I can certainly see some of the benefits associated with that. But if you're doing something real time and run into a problem, for example, bleeding or um, a misadventure, and this is live streamed, I don't know how you dig yourself out of that. But people have been doing it. So I, I find this a, a, an interesting uh, medium. It seems to me if it was just a camera that was connected and the surgeon's performing his or her procedure without giving kind of color commentary, that to me is a little bit more justifiable. It becomes hard when you're trying to speak to an audience while performing a case. It also seems to me, to me completely unnecessary, right? Can't we go back at a later time and have the surgeon narrate what he or she was doing? Why does it have to be in real time? I don't know what that adds, other than a layer of complexity to the procedure that's unnecessary. I think it's a big mistake and you're open to uh, heavy criticism. So think about this for a second. Um, you obviously need the patient's authorization to live, live stream a surgery, correct? Sure. Yes. So you definitely need the patient's authorization. So if you ask the patient for the authorization and they say, yes, here, have at it, does it eliminate any argument they may make down the road that you, the surgeon, were distracted if it turns out there's an untoward outcome with the case? Um, I think you know, potentially if you discuss the fact that I'll be doing this and I'll be talking about the procedure while I do this, and that may slow me down or distract me to some extent, but everything should be fine. I guess if that's disclosed, but I still think it's a still think it's a bad idea, unnecessary, and putting the patient in a bad position to say yes or no to something that doesn't really benefit them, right? I mean, that's for someone else's benefit, and they're running a risk without getting any better. I think, I think it's a bad idea. The same as uh, should you have to disclose if, you know, hey, FYI, I've had about two and a half hours of sleep in the last 36 hours, right? Is it all right if I do the procedure? But you need to be able to judge for yourself whether or not you're going to be distracted or capable of doing the procedure, and you can't lay that off on the patient. I think that's a good point. There's always a power dynamic between the surgeon and the patient, and a jury will always perceive the doctor is in the leverage position. The doctor is the one that needs to make these decisions, even though it's collaborative decision-making. Yep. I think, I think that's exactly right. All right, so the take-home message here is um, you want to minimize both actual and perceived distraction in the operating room. I don't, smartphones aren't going anywhere. They're still going to be in the operating room. Uh, but even the American College of Surgeons has put out guidelines on how to use it in a disciplined way. 
and avoid anything that may pose a distraction. So look, I've, I, I can certainly say that I personally have called surgeons in the operating room and um, my take has been if I do call them during a portion of the procedure that's fairly benign, um, they're likely to have their staff pick up. If I tend to, if I happen to call during a critical portion of the operation, I'll go straight to voicemail. They don't bother picking up. So I, th I think most surgeons are adult enough to figure out how to triage. But to your point, that's not enough. The question comes down to the perception of distraction, not just the actual distraction. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that, that that's right. And that may be considered unfair by some surgeons to say, but it wasn't really a distraction. I didn't really have any of the problems. People just think I do, but you know, it's, it's what the jury believes that makes all the difference. All right. On that uplifting note, we bid adieu until we meet again. Have a good day. Before we go, let's give another shout out to our sponsor, CareCloud. Don't let bad billing processes keep you from your hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash carecloud. Don't wait. CareCloud is ready to help your practice thrive. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epson Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.